1: The late 1990s was an era marked by breakthroughs in the record industry. CDs were flying off shelves as teens lined up weekly to buy the hits of their favourite heartthrobs. And music wasn't yet impacted by the boom of digital distribution. One particular group was on the rise In Sync. All around the world, girls repped merch covered by the faces of Justin Timberlake, J.C. C. Chazé. Chris Kirkpatrick, Joey Fatone, and Lance Bass. But most people were unaware of the five-person boy band's sixth member. Lou Perlman, the Cherubic Music Impresario, was technically the group's manager, but on paper, he was listed as one of the band. By 1998, their self-titled album went viral, eventually going ten times platinum. But during that time, the five boys only received an allotment of $35 a day. Lou assured them the real money was adding up and he was taking good care of it. A year later, in 1999, Lou invited the five band members to a special dinner at Lowry's, one of his favorite Beverly Hills hangouts. Seated at a custom wooden table with matching leather seats, The musicians ordered $100 plates of Angus beef. The pricey prime rib restaurant was the perfect place for an opulent celebration. So when Lou handed them each an envelope, they thought they were about to become millionaires. The moment was well overdue. When the boys saw the numbers on the checks inside, they couldn't believe what they were reading. After three years of global shows and record-breaking hits, they'd only grossed $10,000 each. For the time they'd put in, that amount didn't even come close to hitting minimum wage. Something had to be wrong. Masking their disappointment, the boys waited until they got back to the hotel to express how they felt. Lance Bass ripped up his paltry check from his own penthouse suite, Lou Pearlman celebrated his successful swindle. He presumed the musicians had been sated by his pitiful payment. Little did he know, his boy band plot was beginning to unravel. And so started the demise of one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in US history. Welcome to Con Artists, a Parcast Original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conartis for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conartis in the search bar. Last week, we discussed Lou Perlman's upbringing in Queens, New York, and his unlikely journey from airships to riches. But the fraudulent company that helped him establish his wealth was only the beginning for Lou. This week, we'll talk about Lou's life post-aviation and his venture into Popstar Nation, a journey that would give him a legitimacy he leveraged into cold, hard cash. As victims of his cons kept investing, he discreetly stole over $300 million. Lou Perlman's first taste of the music industry came from his impressive Rolodex of clients who rented his private jets. Even though his company wasn't as booming as he claimed, he did enough actual business to forge relationships with high-profile people. At one point, Lou rented a private jet out to New Kids on the Block, the pop R&B crossover group that won over America in the late 80s. During their rental, Lou learned that New Kids on the Block made $200 million in record sales and $800 million in touring and merchandising. Lou decided he was in the wrong industry. His new objective became clear. He would make his own boy band. Lou knew New York wasn't the place for it. While considering options for relocation, Orlando, Florida struck his fancy. Home to Disney World, the town of entertainment would be a promising place to find young, aspiring performers. So Lou took the leap of faith, moved to Orlando, and brought his swindling ways with him. His first step was maintaining Airship International, which he did by securing marketing deals with MetLife and SeaWorld. But even while building out his air charter empire in this new locale, Lou never lost sight of his real goal. In 1992, he placed an ad in the Orlando Sentinel. It read, Producer seeks male singers that move well, between 16 and 19 years of age, wanted for new kids-type singing dance group. Of course, it didn't take long for a whole slew of talented young boys to start reaching out. He had AJ McLean, Howie Durrow and Nick Carter all on board to join the group after their auditions. He found singer Kevin Richardson at Disney World, where he was playing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and Aladdin. From there, Kevin Richardson recommended his cousin Brian Littrell, and thus, all five slots were filled. Lou then gave them what he considered to be a boy band boot camp. Day in and day out, they were rehearsing dances and songs in Lou's airplane warehouses. The demanding rehearsals were exhausting, but they still managed to enjoy downtime, often spending it in Orlando's Backstreet Market, an outdoor flea market. It was this spot that gave the band the name that would go down in history. The Backstreet Boys. After a year of hard work, the boys officially formed the band in April 1993. For the first major show deal, Lou reached out to SeaWorld, Since the famous Aquatic Theme Park already used Lou's blimps, he easily acquired a meeting with the park's entertainment executives. The boys performed their first show in May 1993 during SeaWorld's Grad Night event. It was the perfect plan. Thousands of high school girls ready to join the band's fandom would be there. It would set the boys up to be the heartthrob icons Lou knew they could be. The evening of their first performance, the boys climbed onto the stage at the Nautilus Theatre, filled with excitement. Their opening number was a cover of the R&B classic Get Ready by The Temptations. The show went off without a hitch. Grooving on the stage that night, the boys demonstrated a sonic harmony and rhythmic flair. A crowd of 3,000 people hooted and hollered, and Lou, was all too thrilled to see the response to his makeshift boy band. In retrospect, their SeaWorld debut couldn't have been more symbolic of the fates the boys found. They were captives on display for the world to see. The success of the SeaWorld gig stole the attention of a local radio station DJ, but more than that, it motivated Lou to fly the boys to New York there, they'd perform for ICM and William Morris Agency. It was this trip where Lou got his first video of the boys performing. He sent that out to just about everyone he could find in the music industry, including two longtime professionals, Johnny and Donna Wright. And their fate was sealed thanks to the intervention of two music industry professionals. As former road managers for New Kids on the Block, Johnny and Donna knew how to market young talent. After seeing the video of the Backstreet Boys, they wanted to meet with Lou about the budding boy band. Things were heating up and Lou was all too ready to sizzle. To make the right impression on Johnny and Donna, Lou pulled up to their first meeting in his light blue convertible Rolls-Royce. Johnny Wright explained, What I had heard about him prior to meeting him was that he was a billionaire. He runs around in a Rolls Royce, he owns all these blimps. He also told me he was a writer and a producer. I had no reason to doubt anything that he was telling me at the time, and he had already put the band together. I just felt like, hey, we lucked into something here. By the way Johnny describes Lou, it's clear Lou was benefiting from a psychological experience called the mere exposure effect. According to psychologist Robert Zions, who popularized the mere exposure phenomenon, human choice doesn't require conscious cognition. Instead, people tend to develop preferences for things that are familiar. The brain tends to believe that because it knows one or two things about someone that it approves of, the person himself is worth trusting. Johnny hardly knew anything about Lou except that the guy was rich and creating a boy band. As the former road manager of the New Kids on the Block, Johnny was most certainly familiar with the wealth that can come from teen singing groups. Therefore, his brain didn't have to do the hard work of evaluating the experience Lou was pitching and using critical judgment. Though the video of their SeaWorld performance blew Johnny out of the water, what really secured his future with the Backstreet Boys was Lou's lavish lifestyle. If Lou was willing to bet on the group with all his boastful success, Johnny figured the boys were a worthy investment. That summer, Johnny and his wife Donna officially came on board to help Lou manage the Backstreet Boys. And for the next year, the two worked with Lou to catapult the boys towards stardom. Yet it was only a matter of time before Lou's greed would bring their glory crashing down. When we return, Lou's boy band catches on to his grift. This episode
0: is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: Now, back to the story. During those early years of the 1990s, Lou Perlman, Johnny Wright, and Donna Wright worked as a mass-promoting trio for the Backstreet Boys. Johnny handled management, Dono worked with the boys directly, and Lou directed scouting and business. In one interview, Lou claimed the three of them run it like a family business. He added, we take care of them. But there was a problem with the impressionable Backstreet Boys looking up to music executives like Johnny Wright and Lou Perlman as father figures. The lines between work and home life became dangerously blurred. As far as they were concerned, Lou had their best interest at heart. That facade, however, wouldn't last forever. While the Backstreet Boys toured at schools and talent shows around the US, Lou still had to manage his aircraft schemes. While his blimp advertisement gig still generated small amounts of revenue, it wasn't enough to sustain the cost of upkeep. His original dream of owning blimps was quickly deflating. One of the blimps, which had been chartered to promote a Pink Floyd tour, fell victim to a windstorm. Another one crashed in North Carolina. The third disaster landed the blimp right in a Long Island man's front yard while it was headed to the September 1994 US Open tennis tournament. That same year, Airship International noted a $4 million loss. Its stock had fallen from $6 a share to $0.13. Lou wasn't sweating it, though. He assured investors that their money was being kept in a much larger company, which he called Transcontinental Air. The $80 million company held almost all of Lou's 84 ventures. Transcon Records, Transcon Studios and even Transcon Food were subsidiaries. Without a hitch, Lou covered up the failure of his early scheme by the blinding glow of his apparent success. Investors, in turn, felt secure. Even with Airship International gone, Lu's bigger pursuits were thriving, and he allegedly had a fleet of 49 aircrafts to prove it. This, of course, was also a farce. But as Lu sat in his office, peering out the window at the kingdom he had built for himself, everything seemed to be going right he regularly wrote detailed letters to shareholders about the way his aircraft leasing and boy band bolstering business were performing lou also invited new investors to participate in Transcon air's employee stock ownership plan or aisa promising an annual return of eight percent Lou raked in new victims who believed Transcon was the robust empire it actually wasn't. To prove his company's worth, he showed them forged income documents from a fake accounting firm he'd named Cohen & Siegel. Stock buyers were also told their accounts were insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as well as Lloyds of London. This claim was also false. There was no insurance on what Lou was selling. Instead, the fund acted as Lou's piggy bank, which he would turn to any time he needed to pay off bank loans, establish legitimacy with a new investor, or buy one of his many cars. He also siphoned money into his boy band dreams, sinking what he claimed was over $3 million into the Backstreet Boys before they even had a record deal. But he made sure to log each of these debts for later payment. And when the group finally signed with Jive Records in 1994, Lou was all too eager to send the boys invoices for the costs he covered until then. Denise McLean, mother of the Backstreet Boys' AJ, remembers seeing the first of Lou's bills. She'd never seen that many zeros before. In her memoir, she wrote, It was downright shocking what we owed that man. All the dinners, limo rides, plane trips, parties, clothing, etc. were itemized for each boy. At the time, none of them were able to even begin paying off what Lou charged. But success for them finally came three years later in 1997 with their debut self-titled album featuring the single Quit Playing Games With My Heart. And though they rapidly sold 14 million copies in the US, the boys never saw more than $300,000 each. Meanwhile, Lou walked away with tens of millions of dollars and an impressive network of music industry professionals. Lou was a man in the grips of greed, and it couldn't seem to let go. When his first boy band found success, he decided it was time to take another shot at a music group using the same formula. If he'd done it once, he figured he could make it happen again. So, lo and behold, he held an audition for NSYNC. And by the mid-90s, the group of five fresh faces were on their way to stardom. Thinking the well of boy band talent was limitless, Lou also started the careers of other major artists and groups. His roster included LFO, Take 5, Aaron Carter, C-Note, and Innocence. Talent like this also gave Lou prime relationships with executives at MTV, who featured many of Lou's artists on their show Total Request Live. His performer's fame also increased his credibility. Anytime inquiring investors got a bit too threatening, Lou would fly them down to Florida to tour his music facilities. Sometimes they'd stop in on a Backstreet Boys recording session, at which point the investor in question would be starstruck. Through niceties, kind gestures and empty promises, Lou would explain away a giant sinkhole of debt. And so, appeased by their encounters with the Backstreet Boys, investors would go home and Lou would continue reigning over his fraudulent Orlando Empire. And even while his private dealings delivered a great deal of stress, He always managed to maintain a fun light-heartedness when he was around the young talent he managed. He always sort of acted like he was one of the band. Lou was likable to teenagers because in many ways, he was a big kid himself. He hosted pool parties for their birthdays, let them use the tanning bed in his house, took them to fun dinners and brought them on joyrides in his cars. One of Lou's greatest talents was social performance. His jolly demeanor and rotund shape made him approachable, fun, and seemingly harmless. By seeming like a weaker man than he actually was, people came to trust him with their lives. Lou was actually operating on a very basic psychological principle that's commonly criticized by those who advise, don't judge a book by its cover. The classic wolf in sheep's clothing Lou was a master manipulator conning his victims from the body of a cherubic dwarf man. As psychiatrist Grant Brenner explains, it's basic mammalian stuff. The effect of someone's physical size or appearance on our perception of their character is notable. It's a survival instinct. Brenner says, these non-verbal cues signal things that we pick up outside of consciousness and influence the way we perceive the other person and interpret their intentions. The cheery disposition and jolly figure that defined Lou played to this exact function, making him someone non-threatening and easy to like. But Lou didn't just let his harmless appearance speak for itself. He likely manipulated his artists with remarks like, we're in this together and you and I are going to be rich. He also had them all call him Big Popper. By forming this bond with them, he was able to prey on their emotional vulnerabilities. They perceived him as a harmless friend, and Lou allowed the stars to enjoy the luxuries of the wealth they had earned him, to a point. The painful part about Ponzi schemes for the con artists who weave them is that at some point, people start asking for their money back. For Lou Perlman, The tires of his machine gone mad began to spin loose in 1998, when Brian Littrell of the Backstreet Boys brought a lawsuit against Lou. Brian claimed that Perlman had not been truthful about the group's earnings. And of course, Brian was right. From 1993 to 1997, Perlman and his company took about $10 million in revenue while the band only got $300,000 total. That factors out to about $60,000 per person. In an interview, Lou claims that he made about $50 million off of each Backstreet Boy. As the other band members caught on to the fraud, they sued him too. After all, he'd made his entire boy band empire on their backs. When Insync filed their own lawsuit against Lou Pearlman in 1999, Lou turned on them. He was no longer the cherubic figure they called Big Popper. He was a predator fending off his prey, a lone wolf demanding money that was never rightfully his. The details of Lou's settlements with Insync and Backstreet Boys were never made public, so we don't know what kind of restitutions were made, if any. But it is clear that Lou was ousted from both groups. Moving forward, both the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were signed to Jive Records and had new management. But the strange thing was, even after the fallout with his two major boy bands, Lou continued to work in the music industry, nearly unscathed. The only mark on his reputation came in the form of a dig from Sync, with their hit single Bye-bye-bye. In the song, the singer's belt, I want to see you out that door, baby, bye-bye-bye. Its lyrics describe the end of a romantic relationship, but they were also a nod to the group's recent separation from Lou Pearlman. Their time being conned by Big Popper had come to an end, and they'd made an act of musical retribution. After losing his two main money earners, Sync and the Backstreet Boys, Lou was determined to rebuild, and in stunning fashion. He got in touch with TV network executives he knew, and he pitched a new show focused on his own process of finding and nurturing new talent. He called the show, Making the Band. Surprisingly, ABC liked the pitch, and they went into production full speed ahead. In 1999, Lou starred in the initial season of making the band, embarking on a nationwide talent search in eight cities. His goal was to select five boys for his next boy band creation. Whatever came of this would then serve as Lou's next revenue stream. He called his first group of boys O-Town. But unfortunately for Lou, both the show and the band weren't as popular as he hoped despite O-Town's first single selling two million copies. The first two seasons of Making the Band were broadcast on ABC, but the ratings were not strong enough for the show to survive. It seemed that audiences weren't big fans of Big Popper. Learning the show wouldn't be picked up for another season, MTV stepped in. They felt they had a stronger audience for a show centered around the music industry, so they started it anew in 2002. But Lou wouldn't make the cut for the MTV rendition. Instead, MTV's version featured P Diddy spearheading a search for hip-hop talent. Financially and emotionally crushed by this rejection, Lou set his sights on yet another con to keep himself afloat. In September, he purchased Mark Tolner's internet-based talent company options talent group to some this may have seemed like a natural step for lou but the buy was a bit perplexing options talent group had already been accused of fraud formerly named e-model and studio 58 options talent group was created by a convicted con artist named amon alec defraoui alec used his agency to sell memberships to aspiring models Those who coughed up the cash would then be represented by Alex agency and were promised big opportunities in the modeling world. Of course, the promises were empty. When Lou Perlman took over in 2002, the only part of the business he changed was the name. In his desperation, Lou had purchased a scam agency, knowing it was already a bad scheme, and proceeded to scam even more people with it. Under the name of transcontinental talent, Lou sent talent scouts to malls and public parks in Orlando, Florida. There, the scouts would approach gullible adolescents and college students and gush about the victim's edgy look. Typically, the mark didn't even have a marketable look. Lou was just selling his agency to anybody and everybody who would bite. Starry-eyed kids with big dreams would then hand over their information, receive a callback for an audition, and undergo a phone interview. If all went well, the person with often little talent, promise, or commercially viable beauty, would be asked to pay a whopping $600 for transcontinental talent's representation. Lou then milked even more money from his victims by selling them picture packages, that included professional makeup and photography. Once photos were taken, they were posted to Lou's website of talent. And that was it. Nothing more ever developed for these fashion hopefuls. Over time, these swindled kids began to realize they'd been ripped off, and they bombarded transcontinental talent with angry inquiries. In response, Lou simply reasserted the promises he had made to get their money in the first place. With his help, he claimed, anyone could be a star. After all, he'd created the Backstreet Boys in sync and more. Despite his reassurance, suspecting victims went to the authorities. In August 2002, the Florida Attorney General Economic Crimes Division. ...began a formal investigation into the unfair, deceptive and fraudulent practices of Perlman's scouting business. Victims filed over 2,500 consumer affidavits that detailed a range of fraud and deception claims. And for Lou, these allegations were piling up at the worst time. He needed a boost in his reputation after his fall from the graces of reality television. Instead... He was only hit with more suspicion. Lou Perlman had barreled down the Boulevard of Broken Dreams for far too long with no repercussions. With rapidly diminishing funds, he needed a new way to buy time. Coming up next, Lou goes to great lengths to flee from his lies. Now back to the story. In August 2002, Orlando officials began investigating Lou Perlman's talent agency for fraud and his profit margins plummeted. Worse than that, Lou was at risk of a criminal conviction. To get the investigators off his back, Lou sought out a relationship with Charlie Crist, the Florida State Attorney General. At the time, Crist was planning out campaign strategies for his run for Florida State Governor. To curry favor with Christ, Lou Pearlman vowed to renovate the shuttered Church Street station into offices for his transcontinental companies. Once the heart of Orlando's downtown, the decrepit building was in need of restoration. And as always, Lou made big promises. He wooed the community, claiming he'd create 500 full-time jobs by the end of the year investing over $11.5 million into the city. He declared that he would give Orlando 150 outdoor street events during 2004 and free use of a ballroom he planned to build. He also guaranteed that he would sponsor two special events a year, which would cost $5,000. For all these pledges, the townspeople of Orlando gave Lou a key to the city. Though Lou had done some shady things, he probably thought winning over Orlando's civilians would help him clear his reputation. This was merely another elaborate step in his series of cons, and it's also a classic con move. Legal scholar Tamar Frankel is the author of The Ponzi Scheme Puzzle. The book investigates the tactics of some of the world's most successful Ponzi perpetrators and explains, in Frankel's words, that gratitude, sympathy, and enjoyment of hospitality attract civic leaders to con artist podiums and seminars. Thus, they add credibility to the con artists' stories. But all the hope Lou gave to the people of Orlando was false hope. Despite his sudden involvement in city affairs, he moved his transcontinental talent scheme up to New York. He abandoned the Church Street Station project true to form he was running from his problems and simultaneously making them worse in march 2003 transcontinental entertainment group the parent company of transcontinental talent finalized a multi-million dollar deal with wilhelmina scouting which was an affiliate of the famous modeling agency wilhelmina models to celebrate the success of this deal Transcontinental Talent launched a nationwide talent search aiming to canvass some 40 cities across the nation for 15 months. The partnership, however, didn't last long. In September 2003, the New York State Consumer Protection Board ran extensive investigations of Lou and his talent agency. Soon after, the board officially labeled Lou's Transcon talent scheme a scam even though it had operated in partnership with the highly-respected Wilhelmina brand. Lou's gig was up. According to Teresa Santiago of the New York State Consumer Protection Board, Lou's company was a misleading, overpriced and high-pressure sales operation that has young people walking a gangplank instead of a fashion runway. According to a report in Backstage, For an upfront fee of $995 plus an additional monthly fee of $19.95, Lou's agency will post photographs of a prospective model on a website. The company charged clients hundreds of dollars more for photographers, clothes, makeup, and follow-up photo shoots. And finally, the agency began encouraging its clients to take a trip to Orlando for a fake modeling competition called Fashion Rock. The per-person charge for entry was $1,800. To make matters worse, some of those targeted victims were as young as six years old. Eventually, the Consumer Protection Board demanded Lou and his fake model scouting agency leave the state of New York entirely. In March 2004, Wilhelmina Models initiated a $25 million lawsuit against Lou. It alleged breach of contract and fraud with the use of the Wilhelmina trademark to thousands of clients. Trying to save face, Lou rebranded. Transcontinental Entertainment Group Inc. stopped using the Wilhelmina label and became Web Style Network. Their Manhattan office, along with other spaces across the country, closed. But Lou's desperate attempt to save himself was insufficient. In Orlando, prosecutors caught word of Lou's allegations in New York. The assistant attorney general in Orlando's economic crimes division, Jackie Dowd, claims that she and her peers were ready to file charges. But with his reputation on the line, Lou made a trip to Attorney General Charlie Crist's office. It's unclear what the two discussed, but suspiciously, in 2004, Crist's office dropped the investigation. It was as though someone slammed the brakes on a crash that was just seconds away. This led to major speculation surrounding Charlie Crist's involvement with Lou Perlman Many people think that Lou paid Christ a hefty sum in exchange for silencing the investigation into his fraudulent talent agency. Any of Lou's financial contributions to Charlie Christ would have been made off the record. But in 2005, when Christ ran for governor, Lou reportedly made 10 maximum donations of $500 to his campaign. The next year, Christ won the election. Chris denied every suggestion that he and Lou were in cahoots, but from a psychological standpoint, it makes sense that the two work together. Powerful people do tend to associate. Clinicians have long studied the effects of power on the human brain. Michael Krauss, a social psychologist who researches inequality, notes that power is to humans and their relationships what energy is to physics. When constrained by social norms and niceties needing to operate as regular civilians, we might make decisions that don't necessarily please us. But power can remove these barriers to selfish behaviour. For instance, powerful people with higher paying jobs are more likely to report that they've had an affair. This suggests that power grants the powerful a sense of being above ethical standards so much so that they readily admit to their actions regardless that above the law attitude likely propelled lou to ask for a pardon from christ and christ may have accepted at a fair price but even though lou may have bribed christ in exchange for the halt of investigations into his transcon talent con others wouldn't be so easily dealt with Many elderly retirees living in Florida, who had invested in his ISA schemes, began crawling out of the woodwork to collect the large sums he had promised them. Mobs began forming outside his offices where bodyguards stood by. Lou, the man who was once friendly and full of promise, was nowhere to be found. But the angry investors were tired of silence. Some began seeking legal help. Like Joseph Chow, one of Liu's biggest investors. By the time Chow died, he'd invested $14 million into Liu and his companies, and his surviving family wanted the money back. His family hired a lawyer, Edwin Brooks. At the time, neither Joseph Chow's family nor Ed had any idea what had happened to the money Joseph had invested. Their first step in finding their father's money was contacting Cohen and Siegel, the fake accounting firm listed on every document Lou sent Joseph Chow. But when Edwin Brooks placed the call, he didn't exactly find who he was looking for. Instead, a woman answered the phone and explained that she had been advised to send all calls requesting that accounting firm to Lou Perlman. Edwin's worst fear had come true. Cohen and Siegel did not exist. The media picked up on the story and officials could not ignore the allegations. As investigators built cases around Lou, striking revelations were discovered. Not only were boy bands, wannabe models, and investors pawns in Lou's money laundering schemes, banks were too. Lou hadn't filed truthful income tax returns with the Internal Revenue Service since 2001. Meanwhile, he was submitting forged tax returns to various banks, and the banks kept lending him money. Federal officials discovered that Lou received loans from at least 10 different banks by showing them a stack of false documents and a letter from his made-up firm, Cohen & Siegel. Banks had forked over a whopping $130 million in loans. Combined with the victims he'd scammed for the past two decades, Perlman had racked up a daunting figure of $500 million acquired through fraud. In January 2007, just days before the feds pressed charges, Lou fled the country. The Transcon con artist had performed a most stunning disappearing act. On February 15, 2007. Federal agents raided TransCon's headquarters at Lou Pullman's Windermere mansion. As news hit the press, the world was waiting to hear from him. But Lou Pullman didn't make a peep. No one in his network had a clue where he'd gone. Some said Israel or Germany. But he remained a man on the run for the rest of that spring. While he was away, some officials attempted to track the fugitive down. In the meantime, investigators kept building a case to condemn Lou once and for all. The waiting game put bamboozled investors on edge. Whether they would get their money back still remained a giant question mark. Waiting for some sort of news regarding Lou's arrest, they flocked to online forums where they could connect with others who had been swindled. One such online forum belonged to Helen Huntley. At the time, Helen was personal finance editor for the St. Petersburg Times, but on the side, she ran a blog to communicate with the defrauded investors. Day after day, she fielded comments that helped her stitch together the complex puzzle of Lou's cons. One day, Helen found a strange email from a man who believed he had spotted Lou at the Nusa Dua Hotel in Bali. Thinking he recognized Lou, the man snapped a photo and sent it to Helen. Helen decided to share the reported sighting with the FBI. The FBI contacted their agents in Jakarta and American agents advised their contacts to fly to Bali, Indonesia, the location of the hotel where Lou Pearlman had been spotted. Sure enough, they found him. Lou had been checked into the hotel under the alias A. Incognito Johnson. As soon as he was identified, Lou Perlman's belongings were confiscated. He was expelled from Indonesia and arrested in Guam. In 2007, he went to court and initially intended to fight the fraud claims. Even up until his sentencing, Perlman requested a telephone and internet connection two days a week so he could promote bans from federal custody. His request was roundly rejected. Lou was tried and found guilty of conspiracy for investment fraud and bank fraud, money laundering and perjury. Then, on May 21, 2008, the rotund impresario who had finangled his way into the gold rush of boy bands was finally sentenced to 25 years in prison. His expected release year was 2029. After over 10 years of legal battles, Lou was finally behind bars. The gig was up. Yet even incarceration couldn't contain Lou's entrepreneurial spirit. He helped manage the Christmas choir in jail and attempted to keep in touch with influential people on the outside world, assuring reporters that one day he'd be back. But he never was. On August 19, 2016, Lou suffered sudden cardiac arrest while still in prison at the Federal Correctional Institution in Miami, Florida. Many of the musicians he impacted posted on social media. In syncs, Lance Bass tweeted out. He might not have been a stand-up businessman, but I wouldn't be doing what I love today without his influence. After years of scheming, the world said bye-bye-bye to 62-year-old big popper Lou Perlman. The scamster will always belong to a part of music history that gave an entire generation anthems to last a lifetime. He undoubtedly shaped the music industry. Still, the legacy he leaves behind is one of irrevocable debt for the millions of investors he defrauded who will never see justice. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We hope you enjoyed today's episode on the Ponzi plane that permeated pop. Tune in next week for another episode investigating the spineless schemes of Con Artists' past. For more information on Lou Pearlman, we found The Hit Charade, Lou Perlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in US History by Tyler Gray, extremely helpful for our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkar Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Con Artists was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.